you know, my, my whole aim was I want a shop full of GDRs. When I first opened in 2008, it was just, that was it. That was the goal. Because I was an enthusiast first and then started the shop later as a result of my passion for the car, you sort of still look at them and, and you go, man, I can't believe this is, you know, this is what we do every day. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast, I'm Andre your host and in this episode we're speaking with Anthony from Dartone Racing from Sydney, New South Wales in Australia. Now Anthony is a specialist in the Nissan GTR and for those joining us from the North American market we're not talking R35 here, we're talking the R32, R33 and R34 and I think the, the GTR world... Uh, Love Affair has probably been spawned from the Fast and the Furious movies and we've seen particularly over the last decade the prices of these cars soar to crazy heights. Back about eight or nine years ago now when I sold my business, a good quality R32 GTR in stock form here in New Zealand was probably going to set you back somewhere in the region of about 15 to maybe 20,000 US dollars these days. Uh, that soared to in excess of 80 to 90,000 US dollars if you're looking at an R34 GTR. We've seen these trading for three, 400,000 US dollars depending on uh, the spec and desirability. So they are uh, becoming an insanely valuable car. Despite that, particularly in Australia, there is an avid street scene with these cars. Uh, there's a lot of fierce competition between shops. Uh, the fastest street-driven or street legal, if you like to call it street legal, GTR is into the six second zone now and, and that's incredibly fast uh, for anything, never mind something that you can actually still drive on the street. Now of course the R32, 3 and 4 is all really based around the Nissan RB26 which has become an engine that is sort of reached almost mythical status and maybe as we talk to Anthony not for some great reasons. It's actually a bit questionable because there's a huge amount of problems with the RB26 engine that you're going to need to overcome if you want to take a street-driven RB26 and turn it into something that's punching out five, six, eight hundred horsepower or more and doing it with reliability. So this interview with Anthony is going to really appeal to the RB26 lovers out there and we dive deep into the tech of the RB26 engine, the different variants, the problems that you're going to face and of course the solutions for those problems. The great news is that you can solve all of these problems, just chuck a bunch of money at it. And fortunately these days with the aftermarket industry catching up with our desire for aftermarket parts, uh, this has become a lot cheaper than it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago building these engines. It's still no joke. Anyway, it's not just a conversation about GTRs though, there is also an element of talking about how Anthony has built up Dartone Racing as a business uh, and his mindset and mentality around operating a business, punching out high quality product that he knows is going to meet or exceed his customers requirements. So for any of you who are listening who maybe are already running an automotive performance workshop or maybe you're thinking about starting one, there's some great nuggets in there that will be really valuable. Now before we jump into the interview today, just for those who maybe aren't aware of who we are, uh, High Performance Academy is an online training school and we specialise in teaching people how to build high quality reliable engines 
engines, uh, tune aftermarket and factory engine management systems, build quality and reliable wiring harnesses. We also cover other topics including fabrication, uh, car setup and race driver education. Based on today's conversation though, if you like what you hear, a couple of our courses that I believe would be really good additions to your knowledge base are our engine building fundamentals course and our practical engine building course. And this breaks down all of the information you need to understand about the operation of an engine, the machining involved in getting your engine ready to build, the part selection process, clearances inside the engine, and then of course the actual actual practical steps involved in building your engine. In particular, the practical engine building course, it is going to work irrespective what engine you're building. We provide you with a really simple to follow 10 step process that you can apply irrespective of your engine brand, whether it's a push rod V8 or maybe it's a quad cam V12, same steps will go. You can also watch that 10 step process being applied from start to finish in our library of worked examples and that's where we dive deep into the engine building process on a specific platform. Now if you are interested we will drop a link in the show notes for both of those courses and as an added bonus as a podcast listener you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 and that will get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. Again we'll put that coupon code in the show notes. Alright that's probably enough of our introduction though, let's jump into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Anthony. Thanks for joining us today. And as we do with most of our guests, I wanted to just get started by learning a little bit about your background. How how did you sort of get started modifying cars and get to a position where you started and run your own workshop? Yep. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so essentially, I grew up around cars my whole life. Um, my uncles, three of my uncles, had workshops, um, a panel shop and a mechanic shop. And from when I can remember as a, you know, little kid running around the the panel shop looking at all these cars that they were sort of doing restos on and, you know, paint jobs and all that kind of stuff, started with building little model cars with with them. And then basically just progressed from there, you know, always pulling things apart and trying to put them back together as a kid. Um, Once I got a driver's license, you know, naturally you sort of you get a car and then you sort of start playing with it, tinkering with it, trying to personalise it, make it your own sort of thing. It just basically progressed from there. Did my time with with one of my uncles as, as a mechanic, um, started my apprenticeship there and just did a little bit of other, uh, other sides of the automotive um, industry. Like I went and did SRS airbags and, and ABS, fault finding, all the diagnostic stuff. We used to do that from there. It progressed to, you know, wanting to modify cars and just do all the performance side of things. Like now, a, a lot of those skills that that go into just regular mechanical work, the the likes of what you learn through an apprenticeship. I mean, yeah. that that is obviously a solid uh, basis for working on just about any car. Yeah, definitely. But but I find that those skills often don't kind of. Uh, naturally cover off everything to do with performance modification. I mean, no. there's there's some crossover there naturally, but also they can be quite separate. So, I mean, not every mechanic I come across, they may be uh, a, a very capable mechanic in their own right, but that doesn't always mean that uh, they're good with modifying cars. So, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about how you built up that skill set of, of what to do when it comes to modifying? Yeah, so... Obviously, an apprenticeship gives you the basics, you know, 
it teaches you what tools are, how tools work, how basic cars work, you know, your basic systems, your braking systems and, your, your, you know, how your engine works and all that. When we were going through TAFE, obviously it was, um, wasn't a lot of EFI stuff, um, which, you know, it, it sort of doesn't really translate into what we do now. But it, it's mainly just to get the basics there and, and it's a requirement in Australia to get your mechanical license. So I was doing, you know, mucking around with things prior to going to TAFE anyway. So everything sort of started when I was – I bought my first Skyline, maybe 2001 when I started moving more towards that performance side, like built my first uh, RB2530 combo in 2003, you know, just by myself, worked it out as I went and and that's sort of – you know, just go bit by bit through it and tinker with your own stuff before you obviously tinker with other people's and that's sort of how it all came about. There's a couple of things that you've just mentioned there. So I just want to sort of head back a little bit. Yeah. And you you mentioned that the, the TAFE training for those who are outside of Australia, TAFE, as I understand it at least, is essentially like a, a, a trade qualification yeah. school. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like okay. a, after after you finish your, you know, your normal schooling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's just another another training sort of organisation thing. Yeah, we we have we have similar over here, although it's not called TAFE. And, and I think the same goes. At least what I saw, we used to have a few polytechnic students coming through my old business, doing sort of after hours work and helping us out. And the the same deal. Basically, they weren't really diving into EFI modern modern yeah. engines. Everything they they worked with was old school, probably single cam or push rod, yeah. uh, four cylinder stuff, and you know, really basic carburetor. However, I, I would say that when it comes to the engine basics, you know, it still comes down to fuel, air, spark, and compression. Yeah, and and I see that that that's the sort of the real basics that still, for me at least, is the fundamentals of a lot of the fault finding we do in the industry. And a lot of uh, the mechanics that I come across still kind of struggle with some of those basics. So, do, do you yeah. sort of agree that that Understanding those principles is really important, irrespective of how advanced and modern the, the car is that you're actually working on. Oh, definitely, because at the end of the day, an engine's an engine, and they all work the same way. You know, if if you haven't got those fundamentals, if you haven't got, you know, your spark, your compression, your fuel, you're not going. It's not going to run regardless. It's not going to work regardless. And if you don't understand how an engine works, diagnostics is going to be you know, not impossible, but very difficult and it's going to take a long time if you don't actually understand and you can get tied up in, you know, hours of trying to fault find something through guesswork, which I see happen all the time. Um, and, you know, you just, you need to know, regardless of what you're doing on a car, as if it's to do with the engine, you have to understand how the engine works at its most basic. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, a lot of people get overwhelmed, and again, even those who who maybe have a fair bit of experience uh, in in the industry, get overwhelmed with what they're working on and kind of overlook those basic principles. So I I always yeah. find when I was faced with a car on the dyno that was misbehaving or you know, wouldn't run or what whatever it happened to be, you know, sometimes you just need to sort of stop and and come back to those basic principles: fuel, air, spark, timing, uh, fuel, air, spark compression and yeah. and 
you know, check those off. And then you can start getting a little bit more detailed. The number of times I see people go down uh, an expensive long-winded rabbit hole where if they actually just stuck their head into the engine bay and found that the uh, the, the ignition lead, for example, was hanging off, that that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a yeah. much cheaper fix. Yep, definitely happens, you know. And you also mentioned that as part of this, I'm guessing you mentioned the SRS, airbag, ABS, diagnostics. Did, did you find that that was a, a useful sort of addition to your tool, toolbox, I guess, of skills, being able to diagnose those problems, which also transitions across to re- the rest of automotive? So the SRS side of things, we don't obviously don't do a lot of that. Um, we get the odd car in with airbags that, that has a problem and, and because I've got that background, you know, I did it for probably three or four years. Um, it's pretty, it's easier for me to find those faults and, and know what to look for. Uh, but the same with, with the ABS side of things, we use a lot of, you know, wheel speed sensors and all that for, for data logging and, and um, with, you know, certain strategies, traction and flat shifting and all that stuff. So, you know, I, I know how it all works and I didn't have to really learn it later on uh, because I already knew from before Uh, but the whole diagnostic side of it where we would go from workshop to workshop and fault find cars for other mechanics uh, that helped a lot because you understand the process behind it a bit easier instead of you know trying to guess your way through it Um, and I did it when I was younger so we can we sort of started with cars that were pretty primitive with the with the uh you know fault codes and things like that and got to some pretty complicated stuff later on with the drive by wire when drive by wire started coming in and, and things like that so we got that transition that we can apply now we, we went through that transition and we learned all these systems as they were new and still coming through all right let's talk a little bit about the the engine building side of things mm-hmm. and again at least in New Zealand here with the the training that uh, mechanical go through for qualifications there's a certain element, uh, as I understand it, of, of learning what goes into building an engine. But again, this is more likely to be very basic pedestrian sort of car stuff, yeah. n- not dealing with you know, performance engine builds with forged pistons, etc. You know, where, where did that knowledge come from? How did you learn how to go about that? You mentioned you built an RB 3025 combo. Yeah. Yeah, where, where did the knowledge there come from? So... Here, there's a whole separate course for engine building. They call it engine reconditioning, which mechanics don't do that. So that that involves all your machine work and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we never got to do that part of, of the training. And especially performance, there, there is no course for performance engine building. So you can't go to a, you know, anywhere and learn it. It's one of those things. I learned it on my own um, through you know, hours and hours of research online and, you know, I was a big sort of pretty heavily involved in the in the Skyline community uh, in the early 2000s and, you know, there was – you just hunt through forums and, and find information and then see, like, from the knowledge that I had on how engines work, you could look at it and go, okay, well, this might work. That is not really going to work and, and you just sort of find your way, you know, with just get all the information you can and try and – get through it and, and find out what sort of makes the most sense. Um, but essentially, it's all trial and error, you sure. know. 
I mean, it sounds like your your experience pretty much matches mine when I started my own shop and fairly early on in that I, I was building my, my Evo drag car and you know, over over here in New Zealand, we obviously have engine reconditioners just like every country yeah. and it, it's a bit of a mixed bag and I, I'm not trying to sort of speak poorly of the engine reconditioning industry. Uh, the reality, however, is that 99.9% of the time, most of these engine reconditioners are just rebuilding basic, you know, yeah. run-of-the-mill factory engines to factory specification they're they're not spending a lot of time taking an engine that made 300 horsepower and modifying it to to make six eight nine hundred twelve hundred horsepower whatever it happens to be and therefore it becomes really hit and miss the quality and results that you get at least here locally in New Zealand which is why I decided to to do it myself not necessarily at the time because I thought I could do better just more because that way I knew exactly what was done, and if something went wrong, it was it was all on my head. Yeah. Uh, but as you say, I mean, a lot of it becomes, you know, searching out what other people are doing, trying to kind of sort fact from fiction. Because unfortunately, while forums are a great place, there's a lot of misinformation in there as well. Definitely. Sometimes uh, purposely, sometimes mm-hmm. because people don't know any better. And so, of course, one of the reasons why we ended up developing uh, our engine building courses because I do feel you know there is a a disconnect between what a engine reconditioner will learn when they go through their training and that extra step that's needed in order to build a, a quality performance engine which yeah, uh, the, the likes of yourselves you, you you've learned that the hard way through uh, trial and error now clearly you're you're a Nissan guy at heart, and uh, it's not too difficult to to see that if you uh, have a look on your website or or your Instagram. Yes, uh, we've been travelling to Australia for as long as I can remember, covering events like World Time Attack, and over that time, I don't know Sydney in particular seems to have become a hotbed for the Nissan GTR community, and yeah, uh, I'm talking here. 32, 33, 34, mm-hmm. more, more than the R35. What, what's going on there? Why has Sydney really embraced that uh, Skyline GTR platform so deeply and gone so, so sort of hardcore on them? I, I couldn't tell you, to be honest. Look, I, we've, we've always had, you know, the odd GTR floating around on the streets. You'd see them here and there, you know, but the amount that you see now is – crazy like there's so many of them and there's so many big power cars that just roam the streets you know it's uh i I don't know why sydney you know in particular ended up that way um look i guess they're fast um and there's you know quite a few shops in sydney that specialize in rbs and um that's probably the main reason why you know we sort of push the envelope in sydney well all the fast gdrs are really from here so is it sort of become a little bit of a inter workshop uh sort of status symbol or battle as well there um yeah look there are there, there are a couple of shops out there that that are sort of all competing against each other to go to go faster to drags and that not really what we're into um yeah it's sort of not my sort of not my thing um, i've been look i've been doing you know, Skylines and GDRs since the early 2000s when they were worth nothing and, and no one was really interested in them, you know. So it's – um I've, Bring I've back got those this, times, I say. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you buy a car for 10 or 15 grand and, um, you know, just 
do whatever you want with it now. It's more of a, I don't know, they're, they're, people are starting to look at them as investment pieces now and things like that. But um, I've always had that that love for the GDR. You know, my, my whole aim was I want a shop full of GDRs when I first started. When I first opened in 2008, it was just that was it. That was the goal, you know. Well, it seems like you've uh, you've met that goal. Yeah, look, it's it's good. I come in every day. I look around and I like still because I was an enthusiast first, and then started the shop later as a result of my passion for the car for that for that particular car. You sort of still look at them and and you go, man, I can't believe this is you know this is what we do every day. You know, every day we come in here and it's you know fifteen twenty GDRs here, and we look at them and just go, man, this is this is crazy. Like, I, yeah, it's. It's sort of surreal, you know. Like, so here on on this side of the world, Australia and New Zealand in particular, I think that that Skyline GTR, particularly the R thirty two model, kind of ended up getting mythical status because of its success in the Australian Touring Car Championship, particularly yeah. Bathurst, where it basically just destroyed everything in its wake even though it was continually loaded up with more and more limitations on it yeah. to try and keep it competitive. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know other people on the, you know, the other side of the world probably didn't see that success, but that definitely, for me, you know, the R32 from that point on was always sort of something of a you know a car I, I really aspired to own, and I still, yeah. I still do. Yeah. Uh, with with that engine though, the RB twenty six, you know that that powered the thirty two, thirty three, and the thirty four, and it, it's kind of again almost m- reached some kind of mythical status, mm. rightly or wrongly, because these days we also see everything associated with the RB twenty six kind of a, a, a attracts what I call GTR tax. Oh but yeah, you're not wrong there. In, in terms of the actual engine. Is it anything that special? How does it compare to, because it's old now, how does it compare to something a bit more modern like, let's say, the VR38 from the R35? Oh, look, I think it's just because the car has a cult following. Look, there's no secret. The RB26 isn't a brilliant engine. Look, it's good, <laughs> but it's not It's not amazing. You know, like there's there's many problems with it. You know, there's heaps of problems. Um they're small capacity. They got, for what they were back then. Yeah, they're cool. You know, they were built in the eighties, whatever it was, and you know, it was it was crazy back then. But now, you know, you look at the VR thirty eight, and guys are making fifteen hundred, two thousand horsepower, and driving around the street, just cruising like a standard car. You know, whereas you know, an RB, you get to a thousand horsepower, it's nice on. You can make it nice on the street, but. The reliability is just not there anymore, you know. At those, at that level. Sure. Yeah, you're you're definitely really pushing the boundaries to to make an RB streetable at that sort of power level. Yeah. And of course, there's always been the uh, fairly heated debate between the superiority of the RB26 and the Toyota 2JZ, kind of two supercars from Japan, I guess, of the same era. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, off on a tangent a little bit, but where, where do you sort of see the two stack up there in terms of superiority? Uh, I don't like to go down that that path because you know we all know what we, we all know the answer, but. Um, hurts too much to say. No, look, I've said it all the time. Look, I wish, I wish the RB26 had oil drain backs like a 2J. I've always said that, you know, and an oil pump like a 2J. Um, but you know, it is what it is, and we just live with what we got. You know, when you're when when you're a diehard Nissan guy, you just stick with it and deal with all the problems, you know, that we have with these engines. 
All right, well, well, let's dive into a, a few of the the more significant and, and well-known issues with the RB26. Where, where would yeah. you sort of start that list? Uh, oil control is the first one, you know. Um, just the biggest thing is keep the oil in the sump. Once, once you sort of get around that, you know, oil pumps are easy to fix these days. You know, that, that busted oil pump problem, it's, that's been and gone. You know, there's so many alternatives out there now, you know, aftermarket pumps, billet gear sets, dry sumps, all that kind of stuff. Now, just for those who maybe aren't sort of super geeked out on the RB26, so that stock oil pump, it's uh, a sintered yeah. metal construction and at least from my experience, uh, basically about 8,000 RPM above that point, um, they're just going to shatter and oil pressure is gone bye-bye. Yeah, look, it's more so to do with the short nose crank as well. Like they, they had like about a five mil drive on the early RB twenty six cranks. Those ones used to fall apart. Yeah, not uh, that was a bit of a bizarre setup. How they yeah, didn't have just, full engagement. It was almost like you looked at it and thought, "What did the engineers just make a mistake yeah. here? Did someone not check the the drawing?" It just doesn't make any sense at all, you know. But the RB thirty cranks were like that too. So it's like okay, they. Because the RB30 came out first, it's like they went, all right, well, that's the oil pump drive we're using. Let's just continue that on. And then obviously there's harmonic issues as well with the 2.6 that that will bust oil pumps and, you know, balances and things like that. But again, the factory oil pump, look, it, it can, if you've got a long nose crank and a standard pump, there are ways to keep it sort of together for a certain amount of time. But eventually you're going to have problems. Like it's just, it is what it is. You know, you, you can't you can't change it. But back in the day, your options there were really limited in mm-hmm. terms of when this was an engine supported primarily by the, the Japanese aftermarket. You, you had the likes of HKS and uh, Jun, I think, made aftermarket oil pumps yeah. at, at huge prices. But now you've got support from a lot of companies. Uh, Nitto, I know, do a, a fairly... Uh, well-designed and developed oil pump along with no doubt many others. So as you say, that, that's a relatively easy fix now, correct? Yeah, like you can just buy any aftermarket pump. Look, um, they do cause other issues um, because pretty much every aftermarket pump you buy is a high-volume pump as well as having, you know, all the, you know, the billet gear sets and billet backing plates and all that stuff. So, so you're actually pumping more volume of oil yeah. per rotation. So it fixes yeah. one problem, but actually kind of exaggerates some of the other issues which you talked about, keep, keeping the oil in the sump. So Yeah, that's right. Before we talk about that, the the oil pump drive though, so again, we talked about the R32 uh, crankshaft had that short sort of flat drive for the, the oil pump. Um, if my memory serves correct, from the 33 onwards, they actually went to a full engagement, didn't they, on the factory crankshaft? So it was Series 2 R32 where they changed it. So okay. 8990 uh, partway through 91 uh, off the top of my head were short nose. And then from like late 91, which when the Series 2 started, they were all long nose after that. You never know. You can get a car. It could be, You can get a 33 GDR and it could have a short nose crank in it because in Japan they just – Swap, chop and change engines before they export them and it's just out of control. So it's a bit of a luck of the draw as to what you actually get. Yep. So the, the question I had there, if you've got a short nose crank and you're not going to an aftermarket crankshaft, even if you're going to an aftermarket billet oil pump, uh, you still need to go to the drive collar to get full engagement. Is that correct? 
definitely, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yep. And that for the, again for those who aren't aware, the drive collar essentially is a modification to the factory crankshaft that gives that full engagement. Yeah, yeah. So you machine it down, uh, interference fit the new collar on there, and then you get your full so around fifteen mil of of engagement on the on the oil pump gear. Okay. All right. So back to our, our next issue, which is the keeping the oil in the sump. So can you talk us through where the issues are there? What's what's actually happening here? Well. If you ever see an RB26 block with no head on it, um, they've got oil drain backs on one side of the block and not the other. Why? I couldn't tell you. It just doesn't make any sense. So, and, and there are only small holes as well. So you get so much volume up top that you can't drain it back fast enough. Then you also have the other problem of crankcase pressure not being able to get out of the sump. So you've got oil coming down. And then you've got crankcase pressure going up through the same five holes or whatever it is, and it's just all sorts of bad. You know, just it doesn't work. You know, and this is made worse when you're operating the engine at sustained high RPM because yeah, you've got definitely. that oil pump spinning around, punching all the oil up into the cylinder head, and, yep. and it just basically drains the sump to the point where it's pumping air. Correct. Yep, and that's why you see so many RB twenty sixes or RBs in general with spun bearings or that you know things like that because they're just they can't people don't realize what's actually happening inside you know they think oh it's a it's a skyline i can get in it and just you know flog it and it's it's going to be fine because that's what it's designed for okay so what are what are the workarounds what are the solutions here that the aftermarket have come come up with to fix these oil drain back issues yeah so lots of workshops do things differently there's all different ways to go about it. Um, some guys will sit there and tell you that the only way to do it is to dry sump it. You dry sump it, all your problems go away. Yeah, that's fine, but it costs you, you know, $15,000. For a street car, it's a bit of a, a bit overkill depending on, you know, what kind of horsepower you're making and things like that. Um, then you'll get guys that say, oh, head drains are a waste of time. So they make head drains that go in the back of the cylinder head. Um, you run an external hose that lets the oil return back to the sump um, once it gets to a certain level in the head. I run them on all my engines. I find for a couple hundred dollars, whatever, you put it on. Some guys will say it doesn't do anything. For us, it works. So we run head drains. Um, Cheap insurance ultimately. Yeah. The biggest thing I found um, that's helped us, especially with cars that make, you know, 900,000, 1,200 horsepower, venting the crankcase. So we always vent the crankcase. Uh, we've got a, a catch can set up that we run. You have to – we put big big uh, breathers off the, off the cam covers, big dash 12 breathers, and then we have a dash 10 uh, crankcase breather as well to the top of the catch can. And we've seen that has changed everything for us. So that's just basically removing that positive pressure that you're going yeah. to get in the crankcase at high boost, high RPM which in turn is allowing that oil uh, uh, easier job to, to get back yeah. into the sump. Okay. Yeah, so the oil drainbacks can do their job. They don't have to vent the crankcase pressure. Um, they can just, you know, have oil going back down to the sump. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the other modification that's pretty typical is the uh, little oil restrictors that um, that go between the wall well, into the top of the block. So yeah. that that seems to be a bit of a mixed bag for those who may be fresh to the the uh, RB26 engine. You know, there's information for the likes of Tomei who make these. You can obviously make them yourself, but there are different 
diameters? Is there sort of any guide on you know what diameter is is the key? I mean, on face value as well, it sounds a little bit scary because you are then restricting oil flow mm. into the head. Obviously, we still want some oil up there to Definitely. lubricate the camshafts, etc. So, yeah, can you can you give us any sort of info on that? So, the way you, most manufacturers will tell you, they'll they'll just say, look, put a like Tomei, they'll give you a one point five mil restrictor with your head gasket when you buy a Tomei head gasket, and you know, people think, oh, yeah, that's fine. I'll put a Tomei oil pump, I'll put a Tomei restrictor, Tomei head gasket, and it'll be fine. It's not. Um, 1.5 is all right for a factory pump with billet gears in it or something like that or a factory pump with factory gears. All the high-volume stuff, you need to run a smaller restrictor. It also depends on, you know, how much oil pressure you have. Um, obviously, pressure is related to flow as well, so it, it all makes a difference. We normally run 1.1 mil for, for the big sort of pumps and, and that works like especially when you've got a solid head. So RB26 head's obviously solid lifter. You don't need as much oil up there. If you've got a hydraulic head like an RB25 uh, Series 1, Series 2, not a Neo, then you need more oil up there to feed those hydraulic lifters. Um, we don't do a lot of a lot of hydraulic stuff anyway. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's all different things. And then it also depends what you're going to use the car for. So if you're doing circuit work, you need different ones. If you're doing drag stuff, you need different restrictors and and things like that. So it's not a one one size fits all solution. There, yeah, there's a no, little bit more to it. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. it's not. It's not that easy. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean that, that's fine. I think it, it's enough for for our listeners to understand that there are options there, and and yeah. you know, there's some decisions that need to be made. A lot of this also comes down to sump design as well. I mean, obviously, if you've got no oil in the sump because you've pumped it all up into the head, it doesn't really matter how well baffled your sump is. It's, right. it's not going to save you. But once you've got on top of some of those issues, you sort of talked about there the $15,000 dry sump system versus yeah. other options. Uh, you know, what what do you sort of do with a factory wet sump? Are, are you extending the sump to inc- increase the capacity and adding baffles or you know, trap doors or anything? So we have a, a setup that we use constantly. All our all our wet sump engines get a high octane sump extension. It's got baffles in it. It's about nine liters. Um, fits perfect. Like. They do the whole job for us, and we just bolt it on, and it, it works. You know, it's it's nice. It looks good. It comes back brand new, pretty much, and you know, rebuild the diff and put new seals and everything, and then off you go. Um, so that's our go-to. Some guys have different have brought other brands. I just don't think they the finish isn't quite there, um, especially for a car like. To me, I like the fit and finish to be you know, to look like it could have come like that from the factory. So that's why we use that sump only uh, yeah, on, sure. on all our engines. Uh, in terms of that, I mean, you've, we've talked about the sump so far and mm. also the the availability of aftermarket oil pumps. And you know, th- that's just touching on the wide range of options that are available now as bolt-on components, really high-quality bolt-on components for the RB26. And you know, Platinum Racing Products are a, another name that springs to mind, producing all manner of, of parts. Uh, yep. you know, has, has that made it just like dramatically easier now to oh, do yeah. a quality build on an RB26 compared to what you had you know, 15 years ago? Oh, definitely. Um, now you just... You basically, you go and get a set of pistons and rods. You know, most of the big name brands are going to work fine. You get a nice sump. You know, all the all these aftermarket companies now, they're building such high quality parts that there's pretty much anything 
almost anything you buy is going to fit really nice. It's going to look really nice. It's going to work well, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's so much better now than it used to be. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I, I don't think there's too many shoddy aftermarket no. brands, particularly when we're talking about engine internals. There's not a lot of fly-by-night companies out there. And you know, for, for the most part, unless you're starting to look at 1,500 plus horsepower builds, probably most of the mainstream name brand names will, will do the job. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of pistons and, and rods, though, at what point were with a stock RB26? Are you beyond the the strength of the pistons, rods, or the crankshaft? You know, where where do you sort of draw the line? Because I mean, if you if you hold a, a stock RB26 Conrod in your hand, it's actually quite a, a beefy little unit. Yeah, yeah, because they're, they're really short as well. Um, they are they are pretty tough. I personally, just for the insurance, I like to. Anyone that's going to say, look, I want 450 to 500 kilowatts at the wheels, uh, I'll definitely tell them, look, you know, you can get away with it at about 450. There are guys that have made, you know, well beyond that. But reliability is sort of my my first sort of the, the first thing I go for. So I would say anything beyond 450 to 500 kilowatts, I'd like to put a set of pistons and rods in it. You know? Yeah, I think it is cheap insurance at the end of the day and I think – What's really easy to overlook is if you have a, a piston disintegrate or a rod fail, it's going to take just about everything else with the engine out with it. And these engines are not cheap to source replacements now. So, yeah, you do have to think of the big picture. No, well, it's like my, my personal car, right? My 32 GDR, um, we built a stock bottom end RB3026 for it. I thought, you know what, I'm going to push this thing. I'd seen um, Robbie Ward from Rips over there saying that. You know, they make 900 horsepower and then the piston falls apart. So I thought, oh, I want to try. I want to see what's to go here. So I did it in my own car and we were driving a Bathurst and, you know, it expired. And what did it do? Exactly what Robbie said. It busted a piston at 880 horsepower or so, you know. So I could have built a motor for it, but, you know, it's uh, they are pretty tough, but how long are they going to last, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And a lot of that also comes down to your application. Definitely. I mean, for a dyno queen, you can probably get away with, with it for a bit longer than something that's actually going to be beaten up hard on oh, the drag strip or, or yeah. the racetrack. Now, w- one of the, the things we do see with the RB26 when it comes to building a, an engine is there are a wide range of, of different options from using the stock RB26 block. Uh, there's the RB30 block, which I, I think back in the day was really looked down on as an option, uh, particularly because it, it comes from fairly humble beginnings, yeah. being a, a low-power, single-cam, you know, pretty agricultural engine. Then you've sort of got the RD28, the, the Nissan diesel, RB, uh, sorry, RB30 I mentioned, then there's the likes of the aftermarket big hitters like OS Skykin with their 3-liter, HKS with their 2.8 high deck. Yeah. Have I missed anything? Oh, and of course the RB26 N1 block, which is sort of seen maybe as the holy grail by a few, but um, maybe isn't as great as it's it's sort of seen to be. Uh, give us your insight there. What what uh, what what's the go there? So I will not build an engine without getting a block tested, sonic tested, hardness tested, um, and crack tested. It, it just I will not do it. I refuse to do it. I don't care if it's brand new. A brand new N1 block out of the box, I will not use it unless I test it. Just for the fact that I've seen, I've had personally a block come in, it was new, and 
one of the boards had a real thin spot because of the core shift when they cast it. So I was just like, I'm not going to do it. It doesn't happen. Uh, I found RB30 blocks to be a lot tougher than a 26 block. N1 or not, doesn't matter. The the 26 blocks are really prone to cracking externally um, as well as through the deck uh, just because there's not enough meat there. You know, deck thickness is is not – it's nothing to write home about. You know, it's, it's pretty bad. So, um, yeah, RB30 blocks to me, I've always built RB30s for myself. I, I, I like a 30 with a twin cam head. I just think it's a really good combo. Heaps of grunt and uh, they're pretty reliable and they're cheap. You know, you buy a block and crank cheap and then and you build it and off you go. 26s, they obviously love the revs. You know, you can you can rev them real hard because of the short stroke. Uh, they they fit in the car properly. You don't have issues with, you know, fitting the engine. What's the difference in the deck height between the 26 and the 30 blocks? It's, I think off the top of my head is about 38 millimetres. Okay, so yeah, that's pretty significant. Yeah, and it's all above the water pump. So it's from the water pump up to the deck is where that 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 extra height is. Okay, so what what that means you just mentioned about fitting properly in the engine bay, that's going to significantly affect the the height of the cylinder head, and hence all of the components attached, inlet, plenum, exhaust yeah, manifold, turbocharger, etc. So there's quite a bit. It's not as as simple as just doing an RB30 swap. There's actually quite a bit of fabrication work involved as well. Yeah, that's right. But look, there you know we've got combos that work. We do heaps of 32 GDRs with 2630s. Um, 33 is easy. 33 GDR fits with no problems. You don't have any bonnet clearance issues or anything like that. 34 can have issues depending on what bonnet's on the car, um, but 32 always has a problem. So, you know, we've got chassis spaces and, and things like that to space across member down and um, bits and pieces. But it just it really depends on the application, what you want to use. You know, we've recently started going towards the diesel blocks now. Uh, because we've found the limit. 26s and 30s, they both have a similar deck thickness, so they're both around the 6 mil mark for a good block. Obviously, if it's really corroded, it's not even close to that. Uh, the the diesel block, they're about 12 mil. Wow. Yeah. So we started finding once you have an engine that makes bulk torque, you know, 1,000 newton metres or so, then we're starting to see – the deck distort and, and and head gasket problems. So that's when we moved to the the RD28 for the big hitters, you know, guys that want to make over 1,000 horsepower, you know, 1,200 horsepower, 1,300 horsepower, uh, bulk torque and, you know, that that deck thickness, is it helps a lot with, with head gasket integrity. Is there, are there other advantages with the RD28 block in terms of, is, is there any difference in the bore thickness or is it primarily in the deck? Well, the bore size on an RD28 is 85 mil, so you can automatically go go get a custom piston. Obviously, you're going to have a thicker bore size. So we normally run an 86 mil piston because they're easy to get. You can get them off the shelf from, from Nitto um, for their stroker kits. So we run an 86 mil piston, you're picking up, you know, half a mil to a mil in bore thickness there, which makes a big difference. But and that's in comparison to going to a 20,000 oversized piston yeah. and a, a stock 26 block, which means it yeah. needs to be bored and honed. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, you pick up a bit there, but we've never really had a problem with splitting bores. Um, I find that the if you test the block and it tests up good, uh, you're normally pretty safe there as long as you tune up's right. The 
deck thickness on the 26 block, you know, and I've, I've seen a handful of blocks, and I, I definitely never specialised in the 26, but I've built my fair share of them, and you'd pull apart an engine that was you know, seemingly outwardly in good running condition, albeit stock, yeah. and a lot of those would actually show signs of cracking across the deck surface, yeah, even definitely. in stock condition. So is that is that to do with that thin deck surface? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've seen standard engines that have never been apart that are cracked through the deck. Yeah. Okay. So I find a lot of it, um, especially external cracks, they do crack on the outside too, um, is a lot to do with head, ga- uh, head stud installation. Guys are not installing head studs correctly. Um, you know, they're just – bashing them in there and tensioning them and, and you know, oh, that's what the paperwork says, cool, whatever. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, there's coolant leaking outside the block. Um, we've, we've changed the way we do things probably seven or eight years ago now once we started seeing those problems. But they, they definitely crack through the deck regardless of what you do. You know, once you start getting, you know, really good studs and you're tensioning them to – 100, 105, 110 foot pounds. You you just can't stop it. There's not enough. There's not enough meat there to, you know, to keep the deck straight. And as well, once you start making a lot of torque, your your studs aren't moving, but everything else is moving around the stud, and then you get more cracks and and more head gasket failures and and all sorts of things like that. Sounds like a a lot of fun. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Okay, in in terms of the combinations that are available as well, because there is just about a a, a limitless or mind mind numbing li- number of combinations in terms of bore, stroke, etc., capacity. Ultimately, yeah. you know, if you had a clean sheet of paper and you wanted to build a a really responsive street car which had good bottom end torque, not necessarily aiming for a 1,000 plus horsepower. What's your sort of go-to combination there now? For me, honestly, strokers are great. They're, all, they're awesome, whatever. You know, billet cranks are cool. First, on the street, I think that sort of seven to 800 horsepower mark in a 32, say, say 700 horsepower in a 32 and eight to 850 in a 33 or a 34 just because of the extra weight of the car. I think, you know, an RB30 bottom end, factory crankshaft, really good pistons and rods, a nice cylinder head, don't have to go over the top, and like a precision 6870 or we've done precision 6466 on a 3-litre. It's a bit small, but we've gone 970 at the track with that streetcar, aircon, you know, no problem. It's a car. Yeah, look, and, and these cars are doing 20,000 Ks a year. You know, they're driving – everywhere and anywhere you can think of and you know they go to the track you, you cruise around with aircon you go to the track you run a 970 back to you back it up five times you go home go to Kutamundra, do you know 980s on a on an airport runway you know no problems and then you're doing 20,000 k's a year like like a normal like your everyday car so these aren't trailer queens these are yeah. actually hard driven cars that are putting yeah. in some mileage yeah you know like that is my – I love that combo. That's what I've got in my car. I've had those combos in my car since, like I said to you before, the early 2000s, and they're just – they're so tough. You know, you can – at that point, it's not on the edge where something small is going to cause a big problem. They're just they, – they can cop a hiding constantly 
and, you know, they're reasonably priced as well. We've talked a little bit there about capacity and stroker kits mm-hmm. and the RB26 in stock form. One of, one of the, the things that um, I was never a big fan of is the, the lack of bottom end talk. They, they, they do favour RPM and uh, they're not particularly responsive. Some of that comes down to the twin turbo arrangement which I'll talk about. Uh, but again, it's, a, it's an old engine design now from the 80s. It doesn't have a lot of technology and one of the technologies we see on modern engines is continuously variable cam control. But this is where the aftermarket's kind of come to the RB26's sort of uh, saviour, I guess, is the likes of HKS with their VCAM, and I know mm-hmm. this is a system that you you utilise. So uh, c- can you give us a bit of a rundown? What is the HKS VCAM? What does it give the RB26 in terms of usability or any of the RB combinations, and, and how are you utilising it? Yeah, so basically it's, it's a constantly variable inlet camshaft, um, similar to like, your VVTi on a on a Toyota or um, or on a, like the AVCS on a Subaru, it's I, I believe it's actually they use the Subaru internals and make a new outer HKS. So the gear looks identical to a Subaru gear. Uh, so there's two there's a there's a, a step one, step two, and a step pro. Step one is thirty degrees of adjustment. So uh, that's what we use. I don't. I don't believe you need any more than that. The step two and step pro use fifty degrees of adjustment in the gear. Um, the problem with the HKS system, it's designed for your, you know, because obviously they only have their hundred ron or whatever it is fuel. Um, most it's designed for that kind of fuel and a twin turbo car, say dash five, um, dash five turbos or something like that. So. They're not really designed for big horsepower, so the camshaft is quite small. Uh, we had a car come in that had this system from Japan, but the customer wanted to go 3.2 litre, um, you know, nice size single turbo. He wanted to make about 800 horsepower. So I said, there's no way this camshaft's going to do it. It's tiny. I think it was like 8 mil lift or something like that and 240 degrees duration. It was it's a baby cam, you know. So we went and we designed our own camshaft. We worked out what we wanted, got it to about 10 mil a lift. Car made just short of 900 horsepower. It's great. And then we started to push it more and more and more. Um, currently, that, that same car makes just short of 1,100 horsepower at the, at the hubs. Um, and, yeah, it's it's bring it brings on everyone that's seen this – the way this car performs, it brings on that. It's got a precision 72-75 now and it comes on like I can – we can bring that turbo on at 4,000 RPM and bust the engine, um, you know, which is the reason why we went to the diesel block because of that particular car. Um, and just the torque is amazing. It, it'll come on like, like a baby turbo. It makes – I think at the moment to keep the engine together – it makes sort of 20 pounds at about 4,000 and then we ramp it really like progressively to keep that torque curve nice and flat at that. I think it was last time we tuned, it was a while ago now, probably two years ago, somewhere around the 1,000 newton meter mark, almost dead flat from 4,200 to I think it we revved it to just short of 9,000 and it makes – that's 36 pounds right up top just to keep that torque climbing or to, to keep to maintain the torque. But on the street, the thing's ridiculous. 
So that was the first one, you know, and then we've we've built a couple others after that and it just changes the engine completely. Could, could you sort of maybe give us an indication of VCAM versus no VCAM as yep. close as we could to all other things being equal? What sort of additional boost response or low RPM response are we getting here in terms of boost threshold? Are you talking sort of 500 RPM or 1,000 RPM? Obviously, depends on the turbo, you know. So, um, But with this particular one, it, it'll come on sort of maybe 700 RPM sooner than, than it would normally, almost 1,000. But again, we've had to sort of hold back down low just so we don't hurt the engine because it's making so much torque and so much power. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's not an insignificant change and anyone yeah. who could get another 700 RPM of response, oh, yeah. you, you, you're going to take it. All right, mo- moving on to other sort of, let's call them Nissan idiosyncrasies with the RB, yeah. the the fact that they came out with the individual throttle bodies in mm-hmm. stock form, and, and I know that this has tripped up a, a lot of tuners in the aftermarket who, who aren't familiar with ITB plus boosted engines as a somewhat unique uh, tuning strategy we have to use there where we're taking throttle position and manifold pressure into account, sort of uh, 4D tuning, so to speak. In, in your experience, I mean, most people with high horsepower, but they'll chuck those in the bin and go straight for the likes of a Hypertune or a Plasma Man or whatever uh, and single throttle body. Yep. Do you see any pros with the factory ITB setup and at what point do those become kind of the, the limiting factor? I love the ITBs. Like, it's my thing. I just, anyone that comes in with a single throttle body, I sort of, I ask them why. That's my first question. Why? Why do you want to put a single throttle? Oh, because it's going to make more power. It's not. You know, unless you're chasing 1,500 horsepower, okay, it's a different story at that point. We've made 1,200 horsepower with a bog stock factory inlet side. Like, not even enlarged throttles, not even an aftermarket, like a plenum body, nothing, absolutely nothing. And we made 1,200 at the rehubs. Like, the car, where, where does it, where do you get to the point where you go, all right, I want more or I need to change them or that that same car makes 13, 1,300 and oh, I can't even remember now. It was, it was just, just on 1,000 kilowatts with enlarged throttle bodies and we still haven't found the limit yet. So I don't know. At, at what point do you say, okay, I want to go single throttle now and, and change? That's one characteristic of a GDR that I've always loved that real sharp throttle response like like a sports bike kind of snappy throttle i love that uh so much so that we we built our own drive by wire um system for the multi throttles that was for my car specifically about four years ago now um and yeah i i just i really like it i don't know it's just me it's just something about it that sort of gets me every time I just it's got to be on there yeah I mean I think that's probably a really good indication of of what happens so often in the aftermarket though Mm. is people assume because they see so many GTRs with the aftermarket plenum chamber single throttle body that that that's an absolute requirement but yeah yeah, obviously from what you've just said there it's probably safe to say that uh, for 95% of GTR owners out there in the world the the factory ITBs are, are, are probably absolutely fine. 
I'd also argue that maybe the lack of understanding from a lot of aftermarket tuners uh, around what's required yeah. to get really good drivability and crisp response from the ITBs is possibly another issue. Uh, any tuner out there will probably be able to work around a turbocharged engine with a single throttle body because mm-hmm. that's just standard, but the, the ITVs really do need a, a slightly unique approach, so that's possibly one uh, one consideration there. Um the the other one that's a, a real common issue, and this isn't just across the RB platform, but Nissan had this brainwave with their 360 degree optical cam angle sensor, which was yeah. applied to the SR, the RB, the VG30, uh, I, I, there's probably more. Uh, talk us through that. What What is the problem with that cam angle sensor? Because on face value, having a, a lot of resolution so the ECU knows uh, engine speed and position at a very high accuracy seems to be a good thing, but uh, sometimes less is more. Yeah, what, what do you think about that? Well, my my main concern with it is you're, you're essentially guessing where the crankshaft is. You're running two sensors off a camshaft and you've got a timing belt that moves around. You know, depending on how tight the belt is, depending on how loose the belt is, you don't actually know where the crankshaft is. So it's never going to be right. With old ECUs, all right, the, the processing speeds were, were quite slow. Well, not slow, but slower than what we have now. So you get away with it. But as soon as we started seeing ECUs, well, from what I saw, that had faster processing speed, you'd get trigger errors and all sorts of stuff because it just doesn't it's, – it's actually reading everything properly now at the right rate. So – you really need a good solid signal from both the crank and the camshaft to know where everything is at all times and, and just so it's reading things correctly. It's like anything data, you need good data. You know, everything going to the ECU needs to be spot on. Otherwise it's not it's not gonna be right. And I think probably taking a, a step back and just for those listening who maybe aren't quite following the conversation here, mm. what, what we were trying to do is give the ECU a signal so that it knows, first of all, engine speed and then just as importantly, engine position. And by engine position, what we're talking about there is really what we want to know is where the likes of number one piston is relative to TDC at any point. And we want to know that to the degree, maybe even tighter than that. But as you mentioned there, we're not directly measuring the crankshaft position from the crankshaft. We're measuring the camshaft position, and it's measured off the exhaust camshaft there, but you've got the cam belt between the cam wheel and the crankshaft. And I mean, if anyone's ever watched a YouTube video in slow motion of uh, someone with a timing light on a supercharger belt, or even just watching the supercharger belt as an engine's revved on the dyno, and you see that whip that the, the supercharger belt gets, essentially we have exactly the same thing happening in the cam belt. So where that there's, there's definitely always going to be an error between you know what the, the actual crankshaft position is and what the ECU thinks it is. In, in some instances, for mild or stock engines, that's probably not an issue, but particularly once we start wanting to make six, eight, a thousand horsepower or more, you know, you really want to know that your timing is exactly where where you want where you expected it to be. Definitely. I also I also see from the the engines that I've tuned, this becomes more prominent, more of an issue when you've got aftermarket cams and and valve springs. Uh, do you think that's just down to the harmonics uh, in the valve train becoming more aggressive? 
Yeah, and, and the way that that valve train reacts with the belt too. When you see really heavy valve springs, it cause all sorts of problems. But, you know, what choice do we have once we get to these kind of power levels with, you know, big boost and, and all that? You've got no choice. So sometimes you just got to go away from the stock, you know, uh, stock cam sensor. I, I, I've never liked it to begin with. I just think it's it was – uh, in the same basket as the short nose crankshaft, I think. Um, it's just, it was never right, you know. So you can't go wrong with a proper crank and cam trigger setup. Yeah. So that crank and cam trigger is two individual sensors. So you're actually yeah. doing what we need, measuring the crank position directly off the nose of the crankshaft and then. Yep a cam position sensor which tells the ECU whereabouts in the engine cycle it is, correct? Yep, exactly. So from your perspective, because there are a bunch of manufacturers making replacement trigger discs that get rid of the factory Nissan 360 optical trigger and go to maybe a 12-tooth or a 24-tooth trigger, reducing the the frequency of pickups, is that a viable solution in your opinion for any application or is it still just a, a band-aid to a, an yeah. actual problem? I definitely still think it's a band-aid. You're still guessing at the end of the day. Like you you still do not know exactly what the crankshaft's doing compared to just because you've got less uh, teeth or windows or whatever you want to whatever you want to put in the in the factory sensor, it's still not right. It's just yeah. yeah. Especially with ECU technology, like I said, ECU technology now. You, they're so powerful. You really need to give them the best information that you can, so that they work properly. I mean, the ECU ultimately, like anything, is a case of garbage in and garbage out. So, yep. as you say, you've got to get those signals correct, and the two signals that are most critical to the ECU are engine speed and position, because all 100%. of the fueling and ignition calculations are based off those two being correct. Which is probably a good segue into talking a little bit about ECUs. And you've been in this industry long enough to to see. Uh, probably a, a dramatic shift in the technology available. And I mean, uh, I know you're not doing the tuning yourself, but you're obviously involved enough with these decisions. So what have been the, the key improvements uh, that you've seen in the issues we currently have access to? Uh, just the, the way, again, the, the processing speed of them now is so much better. There, there's so many more options and closed loop everything essentially now, you know, um, we moved from so we basically for street car stuff that is not too complicated we'll run you know Haltech Elites and things like that and then once we started doing sequential cars with you know flat shift and all that then we started moving to the Motec M1 series and after learning about about that stuff it's just out of this world you know, the things you can do with it, traction control and, um, you know, again, all the closed loop flat shifting and fueling and everything. It's, it's crazy. You know, we all drive control as well. We're controlling all drive through ECUs now, whereas before you're relying on external control boxes and you got 10 boxes in a kick panel, try to squeeze them all in there. And, oh, man, it was just, it was a mess. I think definitely if you can do everything from the one 
tuning solution, it, it makes a lot of sense. And you know, particularly with that GTR platform as well, you've got control over that centre differential and how much drive is going to the front. Yeah. And I mean, I've I've talked to to enough people running these at uh, you know sort of you know in, into the the sevens, if not faster, on the quarter and. Being able to control how much drive is going to the front at what point on the drag strip is is, is really a, a massive game changer. In particular, as you mentioned there as well, when you're talking sequential transmissions with uh, closed loop uh, gear shift control, you know the the technology to do that consistently not only is it making the car faster, but it also really aids uh, gearbox life. So, so Definitely. I think um, I think that that's something that's that's too easy for people to overlook. Um, the other thing I'd say probably as a game changer for me has been uh, the advances in data analysis and data logging oh, yeah. that these ECUs have, particularly when you're running a car down the strip in six or seven seconds. You've, you you want to get a lot of data so you can see what's going on. Uh, same with on the, the, the racetrack as well, and then there's a lot more to it in terms of analysing the, uh, the chassis and the driver as well. Yeah. That's a, a, another good segue here into talking about your involvement with World Time Attack. And uh, this year, I, I understand that you are now looking after the XMCA Hammerhead. So, that's right. Yeah. Can you, for those who aren't aware of what the Hammerhead is, can you give us maybe a quick 30,000 foot view of what the car is and what it's done in the past? Um, so, the Hammerhead is pretty famous with World Time Attack. You know, when it went, when, Everyone thinks of World Time Attack. Everyone's sort of really, you know, a lot of guys love the Hammerhead. It, it was built by Murray Coote of MCA, uh, and it's basically an S13 Sylvia uh, SR20. Uh, now it's it's uh, it's Hollinger. It's got a Hollinger sequential in it that's now paddle shifted. Uh, it's it won back to back. I can't remember what years it won back to back World Time Attacks with Tim Slade driving it and. It's been in the top top three um, for the last nine years or so, you know, consistently top three. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty serious bit of gear. I think one of the things that uh, I like about the car, and I mean, obviously there is a significant budget that has gone into this car, make yeah. no mistake, but when you compare it to some of the other cars like maybe the RP968 Porsche, yep. you know, the, there's a big disparity clearly in the budgets between the two cars. So I kind of always looked at it as a bit of a David and Goliath and, and I think the Hammerhead's always sort of uh, batted a little bit above you know, where, where maybe it, it should have been, which is, which is always cool to see. Now, you've taken over the, the operation of this car. So can you maybe give us a little understanding of, of what that looks like for this year's World Time Attack? What's going to be your responsibilities with the car? Yeah. So essentially all the mechanical um, all the mechanical side of things is is taken care of by us. Uh, Brad Sheriff of Race Tech Tasmania, he's always pretty much always tuned the car and done all the the electronics side of it, I guess you could call it. So, well, he's he's done all the paddle, got all the paddle shift sorted, um, changed to Motec uh, M1, Bosch Motorsport ABS now. Uh, that car was always on Autronic, am I right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So up until uh, last September, it could have been they. Um, it was. It, it's always running Autronic. Which these days is it's quite a dated ECU yeah, that's definitely. really seen no upgrade and support for quite yep. a while. So uh, quite surprising it was still running it. 
yeah, that's what I said to Brad. Uh, I said, go, what ECU does a car run? He goes, oh, it's always running Autronic. I said, really? Like, the car's crazy. Like, it's it's next-level car, and it's always running Autronic. He goes, yep, because we never had an issue with it. He goes, but now, to to go beyond what it did, um, to, to step it up, it needs what he calls his GPRP Pro firmware package um, and needs paddle shift. It needs the, the Bosch ABS and all that stuff. So it needed to go, it, it needed that step up. Okay. So, I mean, on face value, you might think that with one of these cars, well, it's going to be easy to go faster, just, just add more power. But I mean, that that's not really always the case. I mean, this this car, at least as as far as I'm, I understand, was was sort of punching around a thousand horsepower anyway. It is two wheel drive. Yes, it does have huge downforce, but at some point there is a, a, a limit to physically what the tyre can put to the racetrack. Uh, you've got Tim Slade in the car, who's obviously a very talented peddler as well. There's no mistake there. Uh, so. Beyond the the Bosch ABS and the the paddle shift system, are there any other changes to the car that that have been made in the aims of improving that lap time? Um, yeah, so the the GPRP Pro uh, firmware that that's in the car now, it's it's all torque request modelled. So Brad's designed this this whole uh, package based on on his race car and combines traction control with grip level and and then torque request so that that's essentially what's going to make the car go faster because originally it was making about 800 horsepower uh then it was stepped up to a bigger turbo and and now it makes a thousand and fifty um but obviously being a real drive car it's not it's not as easy as just yet feed it everything and, and see how it goes so yeah so basically, what I'm reading from that is using Brad's firmware, and for those who maybe aren't following there, the, the Motec M1 platform does give developers the ability to essentially write their own code in terms of how the ECU will work. So really, in, in that respect, the M1 ECU is just a black box, and it'll do whatever you want, provided you're smart enough to come up with a, a solution, which is, as you mentioned there, Brad's GPR Pro package so that's I'm, I'm guessing I've only heard of this now that's his bespoke firmware yeah. and it, it sounds like what you you've got the ability to do there with the torque modeling or torque request is essentially do a better job of modeling the requested torque from the engine uh, to the amount of traction that is available so it's all about basically getting as much power to the track as the the track can handle without ending up in, in wheel spin is that sort of a, a, a good summary of things? Yep, that's it. So it calculates, like as I said, it calculates allowable wheel slip, um, and then it also knows the grip based on obviously all the g forces and everything that's in the background. You know, all the background maths, uh, and then based on that, it and how much uh, torque is dialed in. So the torque is dialed in via a rotary dial, and then and then your throttle obviously as well. So you know, you give it a, a max number on the dial, and then whatever you you know where your throttle position is and then it knows um it knows how much grip you have and then or how much theoretical grip you have and then you know it'll let let it wheel spin however much you allow it to and and then it calculates everything from there and controls everything from boost to timing and all that associated oh 
mean, with the the miracle that podcasting is, this uh, episode is going to undoubtedly come out after the 2022 running of World Time Attack. So uh, we are attending and uh, we'll be sure to look you up and see if we can do a more in-depth interview there uh, for our YouTube channel. But uh, for those listening after this podcast come out, you can uh, probably check back there and and maybe find out exactly how all of that talk modelling actually yeah. works in the, in the real yeah. world as opposed to theoretically like we're talking here. All right, the, the last topic I want to talk to you about uh, today, Anthony, is is your actual shop because we do have a wide range of different listeners on this podcast and, and for some of them they are workshop owners or maybe those who are looking into uh, starting their own workshops. So I'm interested, maybe could you could you give us a, a, a real brief overview of the size of your business that it's grown to at this point? Um, people laugh, but there's only two of us here. <laughs> okay. So yeah, just me. Real hands and, uh, on then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not the managerial type. Uh, I don't. I can't do the whole office sit down and do that stuff. I always. I got into this trade to sort of build things with my hands. I've always been like that. And uh, when people come in here and they they talk to me and I show them, you know, what we do and how we do, they sort of are a bit taken back by the fact that we do all the fabrication here, uh, or I do, I do all the welding. Um, you know. All the wiring harnesses are built here by either me or, or the other Anthony, who we call Junior. Um, and you know, engine building, we build all our engines here. We put all the cars together. We essentially do everything here, the two of us. And I've just got a third guy on now that does three days a week with us. So um, that's helping as well. But yeah, we don't have a big team. I'm not really interested in having ten guys and you know, random people working on cars. I've always I've got an emotional attachment to these cars because I just love them, you know. So I try to – I want to work on every single car that comes through the door. And that's probably quite a unique approach where I see a lot of the performance workshops that we visit all around the world where – Growth has been the number one driver, and bigger is is better. More staff, more lifts, and more cars yeah. in and out the door. And obviously, somewhere along the way, it's very easy for those sorts of workshops to kind of lose that personal touch. Or mm. quality control probably is the more prominent yeah, aspect definitely. there. And and I think as a workshop, your reputation is only as good as your last build. So do do you find is that why you've chosen to keep your team so small and and keep that personal touch on every car to make sure that you know everything that's leaving your workshop is exactly one hundred percent complete and perfect? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I'm I'm very picky with how the cars get put together. Uh, everyone that comes here, they know and they they see the jobs, and that's that's why they come here because we want to preserve these cars. Uh, I, don't, I don't like cutting cars. I don't like making extra holes. I don't like any of that stuff. So everything has to be done a particular way. I'm very, very picky uh, with even down to, you know, I don't know, which way a zip tie is facing. You know, it has to be the way I want it. And that's why Junior and I, we've got it. You know, he works the same way I do. He knows exactly what I want. He knows exactly how it needs to be um, for me to be happy. And... And that, and that's why we are the way we are, you know. Yeah, I I can respect that, and uh, I also share your uh, passion for the the attention to detail there. Um, one thing that will get my heart rate up 
very quickly is seeing a zip tie that's been hacked off at the end with oh. a pair of side cutters. Not only <laughs> is it a safety hazard because you know oh. you're going to cut yourself up on it, yep. but you know, come on, it's not hard to use a flush cut and no, uh, actually, actually finish that nicely. Or even a razor blade, it's not that hard. Absolutely. You know? Pet peeve of mine, 100%. Yeah. I yep. hate that stuff. Yeah. can't stand it. Uh, in terms of the other aspect of business operation, I mean, I think a lot of people that get into running a performance workshop because they're passionate about building cars, because they're good at working on cars, quickly realise that there's actually a lot more that goes into a, a successful business in terms yep. of uh, quoting, invoicing, dealing with customers, parts, uh, uh, you know, getting the parts in the door and, and managing all of that. So how how, would, how have you found that? How, you, how do you deal with that? Is that still something you're dealing with? Yes. Well, so th- originally the business was started by my wife and I. So uh, it's it's a family business. So my wife will do, you know, she'll pick up parts and order stuff and go and get this and that and, pick you know, drop blocks off at the machine shop or pick them up and, and all that stuff. Um, so that obviously helps. Uh, essentially, I'm doing all the quoting, still all the invoicing because – you know what this this industry is like. It's not like you can buy a, an invoicing software and everything's in there. Everything's one off, custom, this that. You got to you got to know. You know it's it's uh, you you really need to keep track of things. It's it's hard, but you got to you got to know what goes into each car, and you got to be able to remember that. Um, I I've I've got to really I find it really hard to write things down because we're so busy and I'm always all over the place. Um, but luckily, I've got a good memory and I can remember what goes into cars and, and all that stuff. And at the end of the day, then I can just write down, you know, whatever happened on each car during the day. Um, but, yeah, it's it's not easy. Uh, but, you know, if it was, everyone would be doing it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and another real common problem, maybe the most common complaint I hear in the performance industry is is quoting uh, yep. From performance workshops, and you know the the usual story is the the customer gets a quote for for X for a certain amount of work being done, comes to pick up the car two months later and finds that uh, with no communication, all of a sudden that bill is now two X or something yeah. of that nature, basically. Yep. And, and and I mean, I've been through this. I ran a performance workshop for thirteen years, and I'll admit, quoting is hard because a, a lot of what we did. Uh, was one off so you're trying to quote a job that you've never done before and you'll probably never do again I'm guessing you're doing a lot of relatively repeat work given that you focus on on the GTR but is that still an issue for you and if so how are you dealing with that um, quote wise I'm very detailed with my quotes so a lot of customers they sort of get a bit turned off by it because they want they come in they go okay I want to quote for this this and that um, and they expect it by the next day uh, I don't. I I tell them straight whenever whenever they come in here. Look, you come and see me. I do my quotes on the weekend when I'm sitting at home. Um, you know, you get it in a week or maybe two weeks. But when they get the quote, everything is on there. Literally everything we know now. What's involved in a fuel system for, you know, from going from a factory car to a thousand horsepower car, we know. You know, I can quote it every part. You know, fully itemized, no problems. Uh, same with engines. We've got. We know exactly what goes into the engine, so we can quote them no problems. Uh, like you said, being because we do GDRs mainly, uh, it's it's a little bit easier because it's not often that you get someone that wants to go, you know, complete opposite to to 
you know, what you tell them is, is the right way to do it. So, you know, you get an idea for it and you say, look, this is what it is, you know, give or take 10% or so. And, and they're normally pretty, it's normally pretty close. Sure. I, I guess, again, it comes from that experience of doing yeah. those combos over and over again. It, yeah. it makes it that much easier for you to um, to to get it right. Yeah. And, and is, is there also any issues with you know, maybe aligning the customer's uh, expectations with, with a budget? Is, is that still a problem? I mean, I, I dealt with a lot of customers who, you know, <sighs> had stretched themselves financially to get mm. the car in the first place and, and maybe didn't quite realise how much it costs yeah, yeah. to to do what they wanted? Yeah, well, I always tell people the worst-case scenario um, and then at the end of it, if it's cheaper, they're happy because yeah. it costs them less. So, uh, But, yeah, I've, I've seen quotes from, from other people where they come in, they go, oh, look, I've got this quote from whoever, um, you know, 20 grand for an engine. And you go, okay. You look at it and you go, okay, well, this, 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 all this stuff's missing. And then they freak out when you tell them, oh, that actual that $20,000 engine is going to cost you forty by the time it's sitting in the car. You know, And then they go, oh, but it doesn't make sense. I said, well, you have to compare apples with apples. And then you sort of – with us normally, because I'm very transparent, most people sort of understand. Um, and we, we pick and choose our clients as well. So we've got that much work that we, we're able to pick and choose and – you definitely know when you just start throwing numbers around who the serious ones are and who the ones that are sort of bit bit of a dreamer. You know, look, it's everyone's got their own situation financially. Of course. So you sort of you got to try and be a bit. Um, you, you have to be very transparent at the end of the day. You know that instead of just worrying about getting the the car through the door and you know sort of starting a project and not finishing it, I always tell the customers, I'd rather you not come here and not spend a dollar with me, but have a running car, then get halfway through a project and hate the car and sell it in bits. Yeah, I think that that's something that a lot of workshop owners should take note of because it is uncommon. I think a lot of workshop owners are just hungry for the business and will will take whatever comes their way. And and sometimes I think your reputation is made by the customers that you fire as opposed to the customers that you do work for. And and I think again, I'm putting my my workshop owner hat on here. Yeah. Uh, you, you 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 can't be too afraid to to see customers that you shouldn't be doing work for because their expectations just aren't aligned with reality. And um, you know, that's going to save you some headaches uh, in the long run. Yeah, that's the hardest part: learning to say no. I struggled with that for years, probably, I'd say probably a good 10 years I struggled with that, with saying no to people. I felt like I was letting people down um, and I've never been one to do that. Uh, but, yeah, since we, we moved into this bigger shop and and um, had that much work on, it, it became easier, obviously. Uh, it's easier to go, look, I've got so much stuff here. Where would you like me to put your car? I can't do it. I'm sorry, but, like, you can obviously see how much stuff we have going on. I can't do it. Or if you're happy to wait, you know, we'll work something out. Sure. All right, let, let's move on towards wrapping this thing up. Anthony, uh, we do appreciate your time here. Uh, we've got the same three questions that we ask all of our guests at the end. And the first of those is what's next for you in the future? Where, where are you sort of headed? Any any big projects or changes of direction in mind? Um, to be honest, 
I didn't even think we'd get to this point. I was happy just working by myself in a little 200 square meter factory unit, you know. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, one more person full time would help a lot, and I think that that's I'm happy at that point because I've still got control, which is a big thing. Like I said before, um, as long as I've got control of of how things are done and what things are done, I'm happy to to just maintain. You know. Yeah, it's definitely that that happy point in terms of uh, a big enough workforce to get through the work and be productive without, as you say, losing losing control over the quality that's going out the door. That's right. All right, next question. Uh, just given your your path so far, your experience, everything you've gone through, is there any advice that you'd give to a younger version of yourself to maybe fast track uh, your experience or maybe maybe overcome some pitfalls that you've gone through? Learn to say no. <laughs> Yeah, coming back uh, yeah. to that again. Yeah, learning to say no. And and uh, one thing I've always sort of th- like learnt now after after a while is don't stay stagnant. Once you get comfortable in business, it's time to push out of that comfort zone and move forwards a little bit. It doesn't have to be a massive step, just a little bit. Move out of your comfort zone, that gives you a bit more drive because if you stay stagnant, then you sort of – you can slack off, you know, and then you can start going backwards. That's me anyway, that's what I found. Yeah, I, I think that's good advice and I think as well if you become complacent or yeah. stagnant as you mentioned, yep, that's all I, right, yeah. I think that's the time as well when you sort of your competition will, will catch up and maybe potentially surpass you. I mean for yeah. me that, that's why I also still am passionate about the automotive industry because there's always something new to learn and there's always another technology to to you know take on board or another direction to go it's never ending which is which is a pretty cool thing. All right, last question for today, Anthony. Uh, if people want to follow you, check out what you're doing, uh, where can where are they best to, to do that? Um, mainly Instagram, a little bit of Facebook, uh, Dartone underscore racing on Instagram and just Dartone racing on Facebook. Um, they're, the, they're the two main socials. Perfect. All right, we'll we'll drop those links into our show notes so people can follow along. Look, it's been great chatting and uh, getting a little bit more insight into one of the legendary JDM engines. So we really appreciate you uh, laying it all on the table there and uh, keeping no secrets. So thanks, thanks heaps for no your time, dramas. there, Anthony. No dramas. Thanks for having me. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions you'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm we dive into that topic for about an hour if you can watch live you can ask questions and get answers in real time 
If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute goldmine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.